0: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and, of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It began long ago. Two young boys in an American town riding their bikes to school and little league practice. Over the years, the boys became fast friends, united in their love for stories where things would go horribly wrong. Pour yourself a strong beverage and buckle up. You're in the shallow end. With
2: so, JG, I was listening to my very favorite podcast, uh, which is called The Box of Oddities. You should check it out. Sounds stupid. It's a stupid title, uh, and, <laughs> and the hosts are total jerks. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, they are moving to uh, Ecuador, and uh, I was listening to the newest episode this morning on my hike and was laughing because they were talking about the fact, you were talking about the fact that you're actually getting listeners... <laughs> who are criticizing your decision to yeah. move to, to Ecuador. Some people are very upset. The guy who says, you you need some self-examination to mm-hmm. figure out why you're doing this. Mm-hmm. And I love Kat's response. Well, maybe you're not moving
3: enough. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> like, kind of how we're looking at it. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it, actually, it's been kind of surprising that there have been. I mean, most people, the overwhelming majority of people are like, do it, live your dreams. But there have been a handful of comments of people just very upset that we're moving. And I have a theory about this. What is it? People, and and
2: this is by and large a good thing, people tend to take ownership of programs that they enjoy and they become personally invested and they feel like they have a stake in you and Kat and therefore they, and I've said this to you, I'm not entirely comfortable with the the two of you moving. (laughs) I like knowing that you're in the same country as I am at all times. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I think there are people who feel like, no, 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 you you don't you don't just move to another land. You you need to stay here in America. And, uh, you know,
3: (laughs) the text you sent me one morning was priceless. I'm thinking about your move to Ecuador. I've decided this displeases me.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and I was being truthful. I I was not consulted. I I do remember you giving us a heads up last year that, you know, Mm. this is probably going to happen, but. Right. I chose to think. Oh, they're they're not leaving, right? They're, they're not
3: really going to go, are they, Nancy? It sounds like a much bigger deal than it than it really is, because yeah. where we are right now in Florida, the flight, the time that it takes to fly to Ecuador is the same time that it takes to fly to Maine. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's yes, it's international. I I get that, but it's not going to affect really much of anything. Uh, certainly not the podcast. And uh, we'll be coming back a lot. We're planning on doing a tour, uh, hopefully next year, and uh, that's going to require us to be in the states for an extended period of time. So all things work to good. Yeah, and uh,
2: and <clears throat> the beauty of the internet being, as you said, that. You know, it, whether you're in, I mean, we did, we did, uh, this podcast when you were in Spain, mm-hmm. yep. uh, we did one when you were transatlantic. I was in, um,
3: uh, Thailand, Thailand. Yeah. We didn't do an episode, but we did a, a commercial.
2: Clearly it's, uh, the internet makes it possible to work anywhere.
3: It's a magical time to be alive. My friend. It is. It is a magical it is time.
2: It seems to defy, uh, time and space. Which, if I do say so myself, segues perfectly into my story for this week. <laughs> I'd love it. Let's hear it. You're familiar with the uh, the Flat Earth Society, right? People who believe that the earth is actually not round, but rather yes. flat.
3: I, I met a guy, <clears throat> speaking of Thailand, in Thailand, um, who has a YouTube channel. Okay. And, but it's mostly about living in Thailand. But he's also a flat earth guy, too, and he was trying to tell me why I was wrong that the Earth was not flat. Was he it, able
2: to, pardon me, was he able to explain it in such a way that you thought, I could see why you think this, I
3: just don't agree? Um, not really. I'm not the kind of guy who would follow that uh, that line of thinking. But I do know this. People have been to space and it's round. Hmm. So I, I tend to trust the people that have been.
2: I don't know if you saw uh, your pal Jimmy Kimmel a few years ago. Had uh, you know he regularly has that quote unquote correspondent guy named Jake Bird, who is hysterical, hysterically mm-hmm. funny. So <laughs> Jimmy sent him to a flat Earth conference in Dallas, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, this guy Jake was playing along like he was he was a flat Earth believer as well. Right. <clears throat> but at one point, one of the um, the people sort of running this convention takes Jake aside and says, Hey man, you're trying to make the movement seem stupid. <laughs> He's really put out by it.
3: Okay. All so
2: right. it was it was a fascinating look at uh, you know what what people choose to believe is just fascinating. Yeah. I actually, to to your point, had the pleasure of knowing a gentleman named Paul Weitz. He's a retired NASA astronaut and I I met him on a of all places a colorado river rafting trip decades really? ago wow very very smart guy as you can well imagine he was he was actually part of the fifth class of astronauts hired back in april 1966 and he went wow. on to serve as a pilot on skylab 2. good grief he was a commander of a shuttle mission uh, the the challenger's first uh, shuttle flight Mm -hmm. Uh, and then went into uh, leadership positions at NASA. His NASA bio, I loved the the last line of his bio, was, in all, Paul spent 33 days in space and 28 years in service at NASA. Ooh, that's lovely. Isn't that cool? Beautifully written. So, sadly, uh, Mr. White's passed away uh, in 2017, but my father and I went to visit him just a few weeks before he died in Flagstaff. He was in the hospital and we were chatting with him in his in his room and somehow the flatter society came up and <clears throat> paul Weitz was not at all amused by it <laughs> and, and he looked at my dad and me and he said gentlemen i've been up there and the damn thing is round
3: <laughs> Which again I just loved i'm i'm going to take his word for
2: me it me too me too you are you are one handshake away from a a man who Literally walked in space and saw the the Earth and it's not flat. Now the moon, that's fake. Well, we all know that was uh, that mm-hmm. was in a soundstage in Las Vegas, I think. Or
3: no, the whole about. the whole moon is fake.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, I, yeah. Not just the not just no. the lunar landing. That was okay. fake too.
3: But the moon itself, gotcha. It's fake. And birds. So this brings
2: us to a gentleman named Mike Hughes or his nickname Mad Mike Hughes. He was uh, an American limo driver, a professed flat earther and a daredevil known for building his own steam-powered rockets. I remember this guy. Yeah, yeah. He spent his childhood in Oklahoma City, and he soon acquired an interest in things that would go fast. And he really got into motorcycle racing. But as an adult, his interest turned to even bigger machines. Now, in 2002, he set a Guinness World Record record (laughs) <laughs> for jumping a Lincoln Town Car stretch limo on a 103-foot jump, like Evil Knievel style, ramp to ramp.
3: When that when was, I was doing wacky morning shows, radio yeah. morning shows, <clears throat> yeah. I I uh, I did a take on the whole Evil Knievel thing, but I I did it a little bit differently. I jumped a bus over a motorcycle. <laughs> I would love to have seen that. I got about three feet of air, uh,
2: I think. (laughs) So that was 2002. That was in Paris, P-E-R-R-I-S, California, which is uh, uh, due east of of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, But now that got Mike, Mad Mike Hughes, thinking about even bigger challenges. And it took years, but he finally pulled that off. According to the Associated Press, Mike Hughes built his first steam-powered rocket in
3: January of 2014. That's technology that's been around for 200 years, nearly, and for this guy to take this antiquated technology and use it for something like that, you you really got to give the guy props.
2: Well, the guy, you know, he was he was ballsy. He was he was absolutely. He seemed to have an attitude of. Life is 50-50, and I'm either going to live or I'm going to die. But mm-hmm, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a daredevil, and this is the price you pay. So that rocket flight lasted only 11 seconds. That was in Winkleman, Arizona, which is 100 miles southeast of Phoenix. The rocket flew sideways, not straight up. <laughs> that That's
3: a detriment.
2: So Mike, you know, in the uh, in the flight deck there was disoriented and... He released the chutes uh, In his confusion, the chutes shredded instantly. Oh no! And he, uh, you know, he crash landed. It took him apparently three days just to recover from that uh, from that injuries to the to the point where he could he could actually walk again. And he, he needed a walker for for two more weeks.
3: Was he just lying out in the desert for three days, or did he have a support <laughs> no, team?
2: He had support team, and I <clears> just
3: picture him lying there in the twisted steel wreckage. <clears throat> Ow! Oh!
2: I picture him walking like Wiley e. Coyote with the sound like of <laughs> an accordion.
3: You know?
2: Now, apparently, there is no video of Hughes entering that rocket, and some people, some doubters, think that he may not have even been in it when it was hmm. launched. But he claims that. That he was, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give him the the benefit of the doubt. Right. Now, in 2016, he thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this again, and starts a fundraising attempt for a rocket. He's looking for, I think, ten thousand dollars. He raised three hundred and ten dollars,
3: <laughs> so fell a little short
2: of his goal there, just a little little shy of that of that mission, but. Here's where I think he was really smart. This is when, in 2016, he became a flat earther. And he gained support within the flat earth community. Uh Aha. So. Was
3: this just a marketing ploy on his part? Well, that's an
2: excellent question, JG. And again, you have cut to the very nut of the story. Mm -hmm. He says that he was a flat earther. A lot of people said afterward that he didn't really believe the earth was flat, but that he he saw this as a means to get money. But it worked because he pretty quickly raised $7,800 of his goal just from the Flat Earth fundraising campaign. So he said he intended to make multiple journeys, and each time he was going to take off in these steam-powered rockets. He was going to go higher and higher and higher. And his ultimate goal was to get to what they call the Carmen line, which is 62 miles above sea level. And that's where the Earth's atmosphere ends and space begins. And when he got there, when he got to that height, his plan was, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to take photos, and I'm going to prove that the Earth is flat. So each of these rocket test flights uh, were higher and higher and higher, and ultimately he was he was planning to get to that Carmen line, sixty-two miles above sea level. These
3: are manned missions. He's going to ride the rocket.
2: He's going to ride that rocket, baby. He's right. strapping in and he's going all the way. So he runs into now a little issue that we're, we're now in 2017, November 2017. And he says that he got permission from the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, to try this rocket, rocket launch. But, uh, but he said, the BLM says I can do this, but that I still need to get permission from the FAA because when you're launching things up in the sky, you need right. to tell the FAA about it. Now, the Bureau of Land Management says now we have no record of ever talking to mike hughes about this at all so what he did was he he moved this launch pad to private property so he wouldn't have to worry about getting government permission to to do this this rocket launch that makes sense Now, he'd originally scheduled this for uh, November of 2017. He ends up rescheduling it because he keeps having problems with the rocket. Uh, He moves the launch pad four miles so that he can take off and land on private property. BLM says he still needs permits. And he defiantly (laughs) states to them, you know what? I'm a daredevil. I'm not much for authority or rules. Wow. Yeah. Go, Mike. So he acknowledges that there, you know, we're going to be risks in this. And in an interview, interview with the Associated Press, he says, yeah, it's scary as hell, but none of us are getting out of this world alive. And uh, that that just seems to be how he lived his life. Was, he was, you know, he was just bound and determined to do this. So we're now all the way to February of 2018. And he he says, okay, this is it. He actually live streams this launch, but the steam release on the rocket malfunctioned. He had to abort the launch. Now, he doesn't give up. It's now March of 2018, and he pulls off a, a successful rocket launch. This he he was launching at a very, very sharp angle because he didn't want to land on public land. So he actually gets this rocket up to 1,875 feet in the sky and tops out at 350 miles per hour. Think about that. Wow. Wow. 350 miles an hour. It lands, it goes up, comes down, and it's a very hard landing. He actually suffers some compressed vertebrae in his back.
3: Ooh, ooh.
2: But he says, you know, this proves that, that I'm able to do this. So he plans for another launch in August of the following year. So that's August of 2019. He, and again, he keeps running into troubles. He has to postpone the launch. Um, but he ends up telling, uh, in August of 2019, he ends up telling space.com that the flat earth belief was not his prime motivator. He says he was really just a daredevil pushing the envelope, if you will, of, of homemade rockets. So now it's February of 2020. It's a Saturday. This is just outside Barstow, California. That's 120 miles Northeast of, of LA. Barstow's, uh, like halfway between... L.A. and Las Vegas. Now, his goal for this flight was to get 5,000 feet in the air, which would be just less than a mile. But every time he plans a flight, he says he's getting closer and closer to that Carmen line, that 62-mile marker that separates the Earth's atmosphere and outer space. A guy named Darren Schuster is Mike's publicist. Now, he was not at the launch on this Saturday, but he says that he got a a voicemail from Mike Hughes asking if there were going to be any media there. So he's, you know, he's very clearly he, he wants he wants the publicity for this, quote unquote, successful flight. Right. So it's around two in the afternoon. Hughes is strapped into the rocket and and he's ready to go. It's the old thumbs up. And uh, there were people there watching. There were people there video recording. It was actually um, be- being recorded for a Science Channel TV series called Homemade Astronauts. So they had a camera <laughs> crew there during the launch. There's a, there's a, a an actual you know burst of steam, and you can you can find this on on YouTube. One of the rockets shoots which is, of course, designed for landing softly, appears to deploy early, like right away, Ooh. and actually detaches from the the rocket itself, this, the, the craft. Now, one of the witnesses, a, a, a freelance journalist, a guy named Justin Chapman, said, the rocket appeared to rub against the rails that it was on, and uh, that that is what tore one of the chutes off. In addition, the steam, which is you know blasting out of the, the back of this rocket, the left side of the, of the nozzle is actually knocked off by the steam, which jerks the rocket to the right
3: side. Oh, no.
2: So violently that the speculation, actually, I think the hope is that Mike was knocked unconscious by that. Because as you can, as you can guess, the rocket peaks and it starts falling back to earth and the, there are two chutes still attached, but they don't deploy.
3: Oh my God. So this
2: is essentially a giant lawn dart traveling at, you know, 300 miles an hour and mad Mike Hughes, God rest him, dies instantly.
3: Yeah, that's, uh, there's there's no coming back from that, no, I, I can't imagine.
2: No, no, when you watch the video, I mean, it, it lands way in the distance, but you can tell that th- that's just, that's not survivable. Now, this publicist, Mr. Schuster, actually came clean afterward and said, truth be told, we used the Flat Earth Society as a PR stunt. It allowed us to get so much publicity that we kept going. Mike knew all along that the earth was not flat it was all just shtick but another guy named michael lynn actually produced a documentary called rocket man mad mike's mission to prove the flat earth he says that hughes did believe that the earth was flat so we're never gonna know uh uh, until we get to heaven and we get to meet (laughs) mad mike hughes and say so (laughs) so what's up so what's up dude you still think the Earth's flat? But that's the story of Mad Mike Hughes and his shallow end moment, wow, steam-powered rockets, the most Wiley e. coyote story i've I've come up with so far
3: that is definitely Wiley e. Coyote technology. yeah. I yeah. can picture it in my mind. And the only difference would be that Wiley e. Coyote would be riding on top of it. That's true. That's true. <laughs> if I had been Mad Mike, I would have painted
2: Acme on the side of the uh, <laughs> side of the rocket. Yeah, yeah. I got all this from Wired, the New York Times, Space.com, Wikipedia, and the BBC. Mad Mike Hughes. Rest his soul.
3: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry's shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and
0: executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. Oh, well. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: you fed up with wimpy salads and dainty appetizers tired of leaving a restaurant feeling like you could eat a whole cow you crave portion sizes that'll make a sumo wrestler embarrassed Well, get ready for a restaurant experience that'll change your life introducing carnivores paradise a steakhouse that takes portion sizes to the extreme our meals make grown men weep and vegetarians question their life decisions at carnivores paradise we believe in satisfying your hunger like no other place can brace yourself for colossal plates overflowing with enough food to feed a small army. But let's be honest. It's all about the steak. Sink your teeth into our 200-ounce behemoth ribeye, indulge in the lumberjack's filet mignon, or unleash your inner Viking with our legendary tomahawk steak. The possibilities are endless and huge. We're talking plates so big, they're delivered on a forklift. Hope you save room for something sweet. Our desserts could feed an entire village. At Carnivore's Paradise, we believe in food comas and leftovers that could last a week. Carnivore's Paradise is not responsible for changes to your wardrobe. Many Customers can now wear only stretchy pants and seatbelt extensions. Please consume oversized portions with caution. Have an ambulance on speed dial. Carnivore's Paradise. Where portion sizes defy logic, appetites are put to the ultimate test, and eating competitions are just another Tuesday night. Carnivore's Paradise. The email address is lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. Send your stories, your story ideas, anything at all that you want to say, just... Drop us an email, lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. A woman named Joanna says, Hi, JG and Lindsay. I just started listening to The Shallow End, but I've been a fan of Box for two years. I was just listening to episode 35, Swallowing Random Marine Life. I'm specifically referencing Lindsay's story about the ski bums in Vail, Colorado. Oh, yeah. I remember this. She says, My event happened back in 2005. I'm from Colorado. And something happened to me at a ski resort that very same year. I can't remember which ski resort, but I'm thinking it was Vail or Frisco. Anyway, this is definitely a shallow end moment that I did not cause. When I was five in 2005, my parents put me in ski school for beginners. Now, the beginner course for the five-year-olds was a lot different than the adult beginner class. I was learning on a small hill, if you could even call it a hill. It was a low-grade incline that was probably 50 feet long, top to bottom. At the end of the day, my dad came me up for my ski lesson, and for some reason, he thought it would be a good idea to take his five-year-old daughter, who had just learned pizza and french fries as ski positions, on a mountain slope. It was either green or blue. Difficulty level, green being the easiest blue intermediate. Now, like I said, I barely learned how to shift from pizza, your ski tips touching each other, to french fries, skis parallel. Didn't know how to do turns yet, which you need to know in order to ski, but my father thought, nah, she'll be fine. <laughs> now, I don't remember this incident, and you'll see why. I only know what happened because my parents told me. I'm five years old, and even if the slope is beginner-friendly, it wasn't crazy five-year-old friendly. I remember from ski lessons, you put your ski tips together to slow down, you put them parallel to each other to speed up. Now, as a crazy, daredevil, fearless five-year-old, I wanted to go fast. So before my dad knew it, I took off down the mountain, oh, no. straight down the mountain. My dad was trying to catch up to me, yelling for me to stop, but I didn't know how to. I was going pretty fast and probably having the time of my life. That is until I became one with a tree. Oh, yes. No. That's right. I hit a tree. I finally stopped just like my father wanted, but it was the tree that stopped me. I was laying in the snow, unconscious, but blood trickling from my head. My poor dad thought I had died because I wasn't breathing for a few seconds. (gasps) Oh, my God. Can you imagine what this father must have felt? My dad called ski patrol, and while he was on the phone, I woke up crying. Ski patrol was on top of it. The man showed up to save me, went down the mountain. My dad struggled to keep up with him. He was going about 45 miles an hour, her rescuer. Since I had head trauma, I was airlifted to the children's hospital in Denver, meaning I rode in a helicopter. I remember being in the helicopter and crying because I didn't know where my mom was. My parents weren't allowed to fly with me. Instead, they were stuck in three or four hours of traffic Panicking because their daughter had been taken away. Ooh. For all they knew, I had a severe brain injury. My dad did call my grandparents, though, because he didn't want me to be alone with a bunch of strangers. Now that I'm looking back, I was probably traumatized by all the nurses and doctors around me. According to my grandmother, the medical staff had to cut off my underwear, and <laughs> I wasn't having it. I, I was screaming no, not my panties. Don't cut my panties. <laughs> That's my favorite pair. I'm glad I can't remember it because imagine being five in a scary place where you don't know where your mom and dad are, and some random ass people dressed <laughs> in blue pajamas, scrubs, are cutting off your underwear. I remember coming to as I was shoveled into the car crying and asking my parents. What the hell just happened? Why my leg was all bandaged up? I only suffered a concussion and a fractured leg in two spots. They stapled my skull back together and sent me on my way. That's insane. I made a full recovery. My bones healed. I continued to ski after that incident and do dangerous things with more caution these days. Ironically, my mom told my dad to not let me hit a tree before we go on the chairlift. My mom had me when she was 41, my dad was 43. I was their fourth kid and there's a good age gap between me and the youngest. So my parents didn't have a toddler or a little kid for a while and I think they were worn out when I came along. <laughs> it doesn't help that I was high maintenance, something I've carried into adulthood. But sorry, I don't, I don't speak low maintenance. Sorry for the long email, I just wanted to share that, that my dad had a shallow end moment with me that resulted in me almost dying. Thanks for <laughs> the stories and for reading this. Wow. Bye boys, have fun, storm in the castle. P.S. Just want to share with you that I got into grad school and I'm very excited. I'll be pursuing a master's in literature. Also, I have more stories I can share if you
3: want. <laughs> yes. Send yes, all your Joanna, stories. Yes, Joanna. Send all your stories. All your stories all of the time. Lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. So the father, he, he his, his daughter has been uh, life flighted out of the ski resort and he goes and finds his wife and his wife had to have said i told you not to let her hit a tree specifically i told you
2: the first thing the wife probably said was where's joanna
3: <laughs> yeah or
2: well, or he said remember how i was going to go skiing yeah. with joanna See, what what happened was well we were on this um this hill
3: mm-hmm. and um she was going really um fast And a tree jumped out and bit her from out of nowhere.
0: Damn trees. Stupid trees. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. deserving of their time in the spotlight right so come get to know these queens find us wherever you get your podcasts cheers hello everyone you may recognize me as gabby from the history of everything podcast and my name is Bruna
1: and you don't recognize me from anything
0: yet together we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast mystery of everything everything has an explanation we hope but that is what we're here to figure out we will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries
1: that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK
0: Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts.
1: It's funny till someone gets hurt. Then it's really funny. You're in the shallow end with Schnepley and Toss.
3: So I got one for you, Linz. Hit me ter- with your best story you got this week. In a turn of events that gives a whole new meaning to the phrase, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen... The late 1950s China saw an eccentric nationwide pest control program that harnessed the commanding power of cookware and everyday household kitchen utensils. Do go on, J.G. While most people utilize their pots and pans for the purpose of, uh, you know, whipping up a delicious omelet or something, the citizens of China found a rather unique use of their kitchen utensils under Chairman Mao's rule. Forget hmm. sauteing or frying, said Mao, or at least we imagine that that's what he said. Um, he said, let's put those utensils to use to eradicate the land of pesky sparrows.
2: He wanted people to hit birds over the head with a frying pan?
3: Yeah. Here's the here's okay. the backstory. China was suffering from grain shortages. This was 1958, and sparrows were a convenient culprit. They would gobble up a lot of the crops and make it difficult for the nation's farmers. Okay. So pots and pans were hastily repurposed from their traditional roles to become weapons in a bizarre war against these little tiny feathered foes. Cat would hate this story. Yeah, that's why I waited till she left. (laughs) This mid-century cookware offensive was uh, designed to either Bash the birds to death with a saucepan, or keep the sparrows perpetually airborne by clanging them together until they were overwhelmed uh, by fatigue and would drop to the sky, or drop from the sky, and then you would, you know, beat them with a with a saucepan. <laughs>
2: Jeez! Even Wiley e. Coyote would have looked at this and gone, <laughs> "No, this is stupid."
3: <laughs> As you can imagine, the noise level across the nation soared. Oh, I can only imagine. but as as the saying goes, you have to break some eggs to make an omelette, or or in this case, you have to use an iron skillet to clobber a sparrow. <laughs> um, this very unusual directive that came from Chairman Mao was part of a larger ecological and socio-political strategy under the charismatic yet controversial leader. So, what prompted Chairman Mao's strange war on sparrows? And what were the staggering consequences? These are great questions. I hope you have answers. Nope, that's all I've got. Good night. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Um, To understand the situation behind this campaign, we needed to talk a little bit about Mao's ambitious yet ultimately catastrophic tragedy called the Great Leap Forward campaign. It was launched in 1958 and the plan aimed to rapidly transform China into a modern industrialized nation. Hmm. One of its components was something called the Four Pests Campaign. It was designed to eradicate rats, flies, mosquitoes, and sparrows, <laughs> which were considered pests that were damaging the agricultural output. Wow. Sparrows specifically were targeted because they fed on grain seeds and uh, thereby they were believed to reduce the crop yield significantly. So Chairman Mao, with an industrial titan's dream and an agriculturalist's concern, urged his citizen to wage war against these little birds.
2: That's amazing.
3: Using pots and pans. That's crazy. Chairman Mao told his citizens to eradicate scare, uh, sparrows, and it was met with a surprising level of fervor. The idea was, was very simple, but yet very mobilizing. Eliminate the sparrows. China could protect the grain crops and thus increase its food production. Every citizen should take place in this endeavor, aligning the national objective with the day-to-day activities. Of millions of people, so Mao used the propaganda machinery of his um, regime at that time to deliver this directive. He, it was persuasive too. He he had village assemblies called, radio broadcasts, school teachings. They were teaching this in the schools. Good grief! You need to kill sparrows with pots and pans. The campaign was presented as a patriotic duty, and the people were urged to take up the heroic task of expunging China from those pesky sparrows for the nation's benefit. That's wild. The method, while it certainly seems unusual today, seemed like a good idea at the time. (laughs) The primary method was to wander around the village banging on your wok or your pots (laughs) or your pans, With other utensils, you said banging, create a constant noise that would prevent sparrows from landing and resting. Can Um, you imagine having to listen to that? Yeah, and it went on for two years. Good grief. It was relentless, this noise barrage, designed to keep the sparrows in flight until they eventually fell to earth from exhaustion. And if they were still alive at that point, you bash them with a saucepan. Good grief. Citizens were encouraged in addition to that to destroy nests and eggs, further reducing the sparrow population. The collective action involved everybody from children who would, they would go out and they would shake trees to dislodge the nests and adults would vigilantly monitor and guard the grain fields from these winged intruders. It was total war on sparrows for like two years. That's amazing. The pots and pans method was seen as a form of civilian mobilization, turning a vast populace into an active participant in the cause. The effort was not just about pest control, but also about demonstrating the power of collective action and individual contribution toward a national objective. So, you know, he was manipulating people. Boy, I'll say. And it sounds absurd, but the Chinese took this directive very seriously. That I believe. The entire nation was mobilized in a bizarre crusade against sparrows. Now, reports say that the country was awash with anti, with the anti-sparrow sentiment, um, people going to unimaginable lengths to eliminate them. The Great Sparrow Campaign transformed ordinary citizens into relentless, pan-wielding sparrow killers. <laughs> it's just such a bizarre mental image, isn't it? It's nuts. It's crazy. Hundreds of thousands of people out in their yards, banging on pots and pans until sparrows fall to the ground and then beating them to death with their cookware. That's just nuts. Now, nature has a way of asserting balance, and the fallout from the uh, campaign was nothing short of disastrous Uh, sparrows while indeed feasting on grains also play an essential role in controlling insect population, particularly locusts. So in the absence of sparrows, their natural predators, the locust population exploded and it resulted in a devastating plague that decimated crop yields.
2: I was thinking when you started this story, when you talked about the four, he was trying to eradicate flies Sparrows, ants and
3: rats, flies, mosquitoes, and sparrows. Mosquitoes.
2: I was thinking you can't be serious about eliminating <laughs> four four species yeah. of living things without causing some other unforeseen something that's it's just it's gonna be a a tragedy.
3: Yeah. That's N- nuts. Nature has its balance. Yeah. So the locust population explodes and decimates all of their crops. And then Mao ordered his people to wage war on the on the locusts using nothing but colorful hats and little those little car fresheners that look like pine trees. Okay, I made that up, but it would probably be about as as successful. The point is the locusts had free reign and ended up destroying the grain crops that a saucepan clanging villager had set out to protect of course because they had no natural enemy the psychological um, imbalance coupled with other failed policies under the great leap forward campaign directly contributed to the great chinese famine of 1959 through 1961 one of the deadliest famines in human history now they they did kill a lot of sparrows but the number of people that died, the human toll due to this famine, is placed at somewhere between 15 and 45 million people, way more Holy than the moly. sparrows that wow. were killed. Wow. Holy cow. That's
2: incredible.
3: It was one of the most wow. severe ecological catastrophes in history. The Chinese government called off the campaign in 1960s. Uh, sparrows were replaced on the list of four with bedbugs okay (laughs) but the damage the damage had already been done and come to find out bed bugs really didn't give a shit when confronted by starving villager clanging on a pan yeah um (laughs) nature's balance had been recklessly disrupted and the price was that was paid was extremely extremely steep and quick crazy
2: crazy story i can't believe i've never heard of this before
3: the Great Sparrow Campaign serves as a reminder of the interconnectedness of our ecosystems and the severe consequences of meddling without comprehensive understanding. It also reminds us that, quote, if you go banging on skillets for Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anyone anyhow. <laughs> Nicely done, sir. Any um, My sources a book called Mao's War Against Nature by Judith Shapiro. Uh, another book, Mao's Great Famine by Frank Frank DeCoter, and Ecological Integrity by David Pimentel. There you go. That's a lot of books. It's a lot of sparrows. feel bad for the bedbugs now. It's funny how it's like, almost like a domino effect. One part of the um, ecology falls and it, and it affects, affects something else and then on and on and on and on of and on. Of course, and yeah. It yeah. Uh, has far-reaching consequences. Most of the time, not good ones. It reminds me of the expression, man plans, God laughs. Yeah, there you go. That sums it up. We appreciate you guys hanging out with us here on The Shallow End. And um, gosh, we're we're quickly approaching, what, this is episode 54, right?
2: Yeah. Something like that?
3: Wow, that's crazy. Coming up around one year anniversary, too, by the way. We love
2: that about ourselves. As we said, lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. We look forward to your emails. And while we're uh, asking you to send emails, another favor of try turning your uh, your friends and family onto this podcast so we can help it continue to grow.
3: We'd appreciate it. And we will look forward to next week when we all hang out together for more stories of ridiculous things that people are apt to do and if you see a sparrow be good to it and don't go messing up your cookware
2: leave the pots and pans in the kitchen where they freaking belong remember make good choices your life might depend on it
1: so concludes another episode of the shallow end with schnebley and toff we thank you for listening oh be a dear would you please subscribe to this podcast give these boys a five-star rating and think of something nice to say even if you have to make And visit us online at ShallowEndPodcast.com. Okay, gotta go.
0: Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we
3: are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.